Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. We head to Cedar Rapids, Iowa today to talk with City Council Member Ashley Venorni. Ashley is the second youngest person to ever serve on the Cedar Rapids City Council. We talk about the challenges of youth, gender, and the seemingly never-ending disasters to respond to in local government. She has an exciting, holistic view of city government from her professional work in healthcare that I think will be gaining traction in years to come. Enjoy. Cedar Rapids City Council Member Ashley Venorni, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So why don't we just talk, how are things going in Cedar Rapids? What should people know about your city? Well, there's a lot of really places making things that I would love for people to take home and remember about Cedar Rapids. What I will say is we are the cereal capital of the world. So if you've bought something from General Mills or from Quaker Oats, you've had something that came from Cedar Rapids. And I'm sure most people have heard of the United States Quarter. I know that sounds really gimmicky, but I'll tell you that that metal that makes up The United States quarter, 70% of the U.S. Mint's contract is with a company in my district that I oversee, District 5 in Cedar Rapids, and it's a company called PMX. So my gimmick usually is with visiting elected officials or honored guests or even presidential candidates when we have the Iowa caucuses is I'll give somebody a quarter and let them know that any time that they miss Cedar Rapids, they usually have a little piece of home in their pocket. Cedar Rapids has had a lot. We are an extremely resilient place. I've lived here the majority of my life, all but a few years as a child. And what I will say is we have weathered many storms, pun intended. And so we tend to be known for our floods. We had a derecho recently that in 2020, as if 2020 wasn't hard enough, We had a derecho that removed 65% of our tree canopies. So we are very weathered, so to speak. So those are a few things that people know about Cedar Rapids, other than it being Iowa's second largest city. I love that. I want to hear, we're going to dive into all these subjects. I'm wondering, you know, you give people a quarter, they can also always pay their parking meters and get you the (laughs) revenue that you need. Let's talk about those floods. Certainly, uh, it was a national news story and 2008 and 2016, when you saw floods, we're living in a world of climate change. How does Cedar Rapids think about resilience in this era? Something that's very personal to us. A lot of people have been very intimately affected by huge weather events, and they're increasing. And we know that. And we don't shy away from saying that climate change is real here in Cedar Rapids. Matter of fact, 
you know, we have a climate action plan that I help to lead. And that is something that's really important to us. I think, you know, anybody on city council will tell you we always work as a team. So where it may have been me and another council member who are leading those conversations, nothing happens without the rest of the team passing that forward. But you know, we don't shy away from that. We're trying to make plans where we have, you know, nearly a billion dollars going into preparing a flood wall right now, because we know that as climate change continues to pummel us, as it has year after year with more floods, you know, harsher storms, we are building up almost fortress-like walls, you know, around the Cedar River that we're very lucky to have in Cedar Rapids. But, you know, we have to do those permanent things so that we can actually get past that and have some you know, quality of life investments that we're doing instead of just damage control and and recovery from damage. And, you know, Cedar Rapids is a manufacturing center, as you mentioned, in the middle of a rural state, agricultural state. Have you seen other knock-on effects from climate change to your economy or overall weather patterns that your city's experiencing? You know, I think when we've had droughts or excessive rain, that impacts our economy quite a bit. For us, you know, the the flood of 2008 specifically at that point in time was one of the U.S.'s worst natural disasters. And yet not many people heard of it. But, you know, the middle of our downtown was 10 feet underwater and there were billions of dollars of loss. And, you know, historic financial losses, historic recovery efforts Obviously, you know, at this, they're actively still recovering, and it still is one of the most prominent things that we're doing. However, I will say that in our recent city council goal setting session, we are starting to change our focus. And it's not that we're, you know, giving up, uh, you know, as far as the energy to recover from the 2008 flood, but we're starting to, to turn a corner where it isn't the most pressing thing that we're doing. It's still a very important project to us, but actually we are now starting to really focus on some quality of life initiatives and particularly doubling back to investing in uh, housing security and food security, hoping to further support our homeless population. Yeah, I want to talk about that because by vocation, you're a healthcare administrator. So I imagine flood walls and other large-scale infrastructure projects were not sort of your primary thing that you were thinking about when you were running for council. Can you talk about your professional background and how that led you into public service? Yeah. You know, at the time, and I appreciate the question, I usually when somebody asks me, well, how do these things marry up together? Because it is quite difficult navigating this. And and I'm really appreciative of any entity that I work for that works with me. I know it's challenging for them to release me to do my council work too, because it's at inconvenient times and it's during business hours. But, you know, at the juncture of my two careers, I get the, you know, the privilege really of looking after the welfare and the well-being of my citizens. And that means the world to me. So, you know, in my heart, if I have a patient who's coming in and they're saying, gosh, I just, you know, I'm struggling to get here because the transportation is tough. I take that back, you know, to our transportation department and continue to bring those, you know, the stories to them that are very personal that impact something like healthcare. When I found myself running for council, it wasn't because I always had this idea. I was a political science major in college and I never saw myself, never considered myself running for council. And I think that's a story that's really common to a lot of women. But 
when I ended up running, it was because of this pursuit of creating awareness for children in foster care, being the second you know, largest city and one of the most populated counties in Iowa, we have a high prevalence of children in foster care. And so I found myself on this mission there. I've always been pursuing the work and career within healthcare. And so this is something that I was working on at the time and ended up running as a consequence of that advocacy. Since then, healthcare always comes central because if you don't have a walkable neighborhood, if people are, you know, if crime rates are high, then at the end of the day, all of those things intersect with somebody's well-being and wellness. And so for me, they're really nice complements of one another. When we had those disasters, for example, in our city, you know, our healthcare systems were overworked and flooded. When we had COVID, I was operating on both, you know, careers trying to navigate how that, you know, these impacts and the same thing too. When we had derecho at that time, I was a manager in the emergency room. So not only at that time was I actively managing the protocols to address COVID in our ER, but then, you know, I was looking at the very real consequences of, you know, the injuries that people sustain from falling trees and damages to their homes. And also, you know, was coordinating efforts between our, that were out there. So I get a really good inside look at, you know, how people are doing and the true needs that they are, because you can't hide them in healthcare. We need people intrinsically to be very honest with us. And, um, and so it gives me very good feedback as far as, you know, really just what's top of mind with people in Cedar Rapids. I'm going to ask how you stay sane balancing all these things in normal times, much less emergency times. But I first want to talk a little bit about healthcare and health has generally not been seen as a purview of cities, right? It's about trash pickup and it's about keeping the roads maintained and police and fire. But increasingly, as you said, we're all recognizing everything's intertwined and interconnected. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen, maybe on your time on council, some of the conversations around health and cities evolve and translate into policy? Well, our council goal setting session is an example of exactly that. When I got reelected just two years ago, all the media cameras and stuff like that, they come and they want to you know, get some sound bites and things like that of the recent swearing in, the election, all, all things surrounding that. And I was asked, you know, what do you think the priorities are? And as I said, I said the top priorities continue to be housing security and food insecurity. Unfortunately, that wasn't sexy enough for the media to pick up and promote. They wanted something new and refreshing. But what we saw more than anything during COVID was that these issues that were otherwise masked by economic drivers or quality of life initiatives, you know, or really even just, you know, everybody was talking about COVID these things came out more than ever because you couldn't hide them, right? People at that point in time, prior to COVID, there was a, a conversation going around that most people were about $500 away from, you know, really being in a financial, a, a dire strait. And then COVID hit and boy, was that ever true. And we saw just how many people were in that particular condition, you know, so I don't get to avoid those subjects. I don't get to avoid the subjects, for example, of substance use disorder because they absolutely impact the patients that we see in healthcare. You know, I think a lot of those things end up just being very 
in my face. And so I really try to, you know, very passionately explain these things to my council colleagues. And I'll say this, you know, after we've gotten further and further away from just the beginnings and the orchestration of how we're going to address flood control, we can get to those issues now. And we are, you know, now we're seeing a, a united front of everybody wanting to address homelessness. That didn't happen six years ago when I joined council, but the need was still there. And so I've seen this continuous improvement. And I think the more people that you have that are in, you know, for example, I'm not going to sell you lumber. I'm not going to sell you services, you know, healthcare. There's nothing that I generally am ever positioned to need to recuse myself from because of the career that I have. It's not easy to serve on council because of the career that I have, but it gives me a different opportunity and a different perspective that really breaks down the needs of, you know, the everyday person. And I think everybody has heard it enough now that we're addressing those things. And I am incredibly excited. I received some food boxes recently from one of our local nonprofits. And I talked to them about that. I said, not only have I been having food as medicine boxes in my clinic, because I can, as the clinic administrator, make that decision point. But now I told them, I said, did you know that on our, you know, city council goal setting session, we are prioritizing food insecurity. They said, oh my God, I've been waiting for this moment for so long. And I said, yeah, I can't wait to bring you to the table. Like we're doing it. This is really happening. We're really starting to make some movement and get some attention to this very important issue. And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you don't have those core issues addressed, economic development doesn't matter. So I'm excited to get to those things. And, you know, it took a while, but we're here. Hey there. I want to take a moment to recommend a podcast for those of you who are looking for a more hopeful and positive voices around urban change. Our friend Andrea Learned's podcast, Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership. Andrea interviews local leaders who are living the change they want to see reflected in their communities. And she goes beyond city leaders to find corporate and media professionals who are also leading the way, from CFOs to Emmy Award winners. These conversations highlight how people's personal values integrate into their work. There are some really good stories here, so I hope you give it a listen. Check out Living Change, A Quest for Climate Leadership, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, back to our show. I want to dive into depth, especially around food insecurity, and then also your initiatives around housing. But first, I mean, I know our listeners are wondering, how does she do this? Because I should let them know that if they don't know already, you're not only serving on council and running, administering healthcare clinics, but you're also taking a leadership role among regional and statewide advisory groups and other groups. And so talk us through a little bit how you do all this and stay sane and be effective all at the same time. You know, I think one, I have to give myself grace. I have to realize a lot of things that aren't easy. Politics is a very unusual world where it feels like if you are getting a failing grade, you're actually doing great. And that's a really hard pill to swallow. If you get a 60% approval rating, you're just like, you are on top of the world in politics. And that would not apply anywhere else. So you have to accept that. 
I would also say though that, you know, I get by with help from my friends and not just because I like that song, but I do, you know, they're the ones that keep me sane. My family adds a lot of value too. They also give me a lot of forgiveness because this work is, is not always easy on them. And I think the consequences and the ripple effects of impact of those that are in my orbit and it's not always good, but I also, you know, really love to laugh. And I think, you know, if I can come home and watch something that is just, you know, irreverent comedy, it brings me back down to center. It makes me humble. I need people to tell me when I'm acting like a jerk, hopefully in a loving way. But if I get really off base, you know, I think I've got a good group of people who tell me like, you know, I think we're missing the boat on this one. Let's, let's come back to center. And other than that, I've got a really wildly color-coded Google calendar and several different means of, of keeping track. And I just do my best. I realize that I'm also going to fail a lot of people. And that's not because I'm not trying absolutely my hardest. But you can't be everything to everyone and you can't be everywhere. So as you're even giving yourself grace to take a night off, you know, you're missing things. There's always things to be be done and places to be and people to see and hear from. So I think it's just being mindful of all of those. And the fact that, you know, as a part-time council member, my first job is not council and yet you're never really off the clock. So I just try to do my best and remind myself of that and um, try to be really honest and upfront with people about my time and any limitations and barriers that I might have. And yeah, it seems to be working, but you know, I hope I'm doing right by the citizens at the end of the day. Well, by all accounts, as I've researched you, you're doing very well by your citizens in some really innovative policies, again, both within your city, but then also advocating for cities across your state. I guess just to dig in a little bit deeper, I think all elected officials feel that constant pressure because there's an unending amount of work to do and places to be and people to meet with. Um, I think it falls, in my experience, particularly hard on women who are held to a different standard often than their male counterparts. How do you find that balance in order to make sure that you can sustain your both professional career and your public service over the longer term? You know, I think the part that you said about women is really true. I had a conversation that, you know, and and this happens, it's nobody's fault, but I attempted a conversation with Facebook years ago to the greater prevalence, which is great, the greater prevalence of women becoming elected to office. You know, I don't think it's rarer for you to have any elected body that's 50% women, even though you know, many times we have just slightly over 50% of the population. So we're incredibly underrepresented. And yet the pressures are, are infinite on us. And people will, I guess I just never really forget the first experience of knocking on doors when I was running for office. And the first thing that people wanted, and then after they qualified me based on that, they wanted to know what I was doing you know, with my genitalia, who was I married to? Who did I, you know, what was my preference? Was I going to have children? And I just felt like, you know, as a hiring manager, I would never ask any anybody about their family or anything like that. That's fine if they tell me, but it's, you know, you're specifically coached to not ask about these protected classes of issues. And yet when you're a woman, that's what people want to know. You know, there's a lot of great minds out there, but because they didn't fit a stereotypical 
good looking image of a woman, there's a lot of really wonderful female minds that have been disregarded along the way. And it's unfortunate, but those expectations are very real. And they can also really weigh you down and be very distracting. You know, the conversation that I had with Facebook was really about this issue, this conversation that was happening when President Trump was in office. And because there was that decision that you can no longer block anybody, I don't even think I had anybody blocked anyway, but now that it was definitive on social media, if you ran a professional elected account, you cannot block anybody. And I had serious concerns about that and what some of the reporting mechanisms were because I had already seen myself, even in my first year, you know, asking questions as a human being and having people have very threatening conversations to me that truly made me concerned about my physical safety. And, you know, at least in my location, your address is public. So again, there's very real consequences there of people knowing how to access you and having some really dangerous ideas about what's acceptable forms of communication with your elected officials. So, you know, I want for anybody who's considering office, if you're scared about it, it's still worth pursuing. It's the work is always worth doing. Find your boundaries, find your protective mechanisms. You know, if you need to have a different phone number than your personal cell phone so that you feel safe, you know, setting tones and directions as far as, you know, how people are able to access you, by all means, do those things. The work needs to be done. We definitely need diverse voices at the table. And we especially need new and younger voices at the table because we are, again, disproportionately represented by some generations that are very dominant in conversations of policymaking. And I think it gives us, it ends up eliciting poor policies because it's not representative of, you know, the community and the ages that we have in our nation, in our locations. So you just have to work through it. There's no way to get around it or over it. You have to go through it. I wish it didn't exist, but it definitely does. And I just do my best to address it day by day. I'm glad you brought up the blocking on social media. After 16 years, I left office in January. And in like February, I posted something and people, you know, the normal troll behavior began. And it was so pleasurable to be able to just say, oh, wait, I can block you now. And so know that someday you will be able to get to a a point where you'll, after your elected service, you'll be able to block at will anyone and everyone you want. (laughs) It really is just wild, just the baseline of how people just generally don't. But the discourse online, there's a lot of work being done with the Iowa League of Cities as far as civility training. And it is work that's really personally important to me too. Between weird, unsettling notes sent to my home, you know, death threats that I've received, threats of violence against me and my family, you know, all those things really, again, become distractions to the work that needs to be done. But again, even just everyday harassment, those things happen and they happen particularly towards women and everything that, you know, happened with, you know, even the governor recently in Michigan. I mean, none of that was something that I was surprised by, and I should have been surprised by it. We should all be disgusted and disturbed by that kind of behavior. But at the end of the day, those are the very real fears that I have for particularly, you know, women and LGBTQIA people entering office. But again, I really, really encourage people to work through those things because we need them. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of work around our democracy that needs to be done. One of the most important pieces is 
civility and creating, you know, making it safe for people to do often, you know, uncompensated or very undercompensated public service. Because if you don't have those people serving on school boards and city councils and other bodies, you lose that pipeline of people into the higher offices. And so you lose governance essentially at every level. And it's a real problem. And I appreciate you speaking out about it. So I guess before we move to housing, I do want to note, so you were the second youngest council member to serve in your city's history. So not only are we, is there a challenge from gender and discrimination there, but also age. How did you step into an institution where you were the youngest person and engage and make sure that you, and more importantly, your constituents' voices were heard in the process? You know, my representation, and there was a, at the time, a, a local news journalist here who had told me that by my joining council alone, it dropped the average age of council 10 years. So that just goes to show you <laughs> how impactful that was as far as giving a different representation. We definitely do skew much closer to AARP membership. And I work with amazing folks. So I'm, I don't want to discount them on their age. But what I do want to speak to is the very real consequence of people qualifying you based on age alone and disregarding anything that you may bring to the table despite your age. And, you know, you have a lot of people who will see me in a room and uh, it hasn't happened that, that recently, which is good. I think we're hopefully starting to get past that in year six of service, which is, again, it's its own other, you know, conversation. But, you know, some people will look at you and and think that you're an assistant or think that you're a secretary and all those positions serve a very important role too. But, you know, when you are also, you know, honorable such and such, it would be nice for people to realize that, you know, you are the elected official at the table and not just assume that, you know, you're there to grab somebody's coffee. It has definitely been something that I've needed to navigate. I right now am the only millennial elected to city council. And again, it serves a really big purpose because, you know, that is just a an underrepresented role in Iowa. We have four generations represented now on city council, which was really important to add again that diversity. You know, at this point in time, we actually really could use a, a fifth generation represented, but you know, I'm hoping that we do get that in time. What I would say though is you know, I think the biggest thing is having to talk to people who, um, you know, I'm I'm their children's age and having to have them realize that I'm their colleague, not their child, not something cute, not something to, you know, passively talk with, but to really earn that fair and, and equalized conversation. Because I have been, you know, again, nothing happens without the team, Right. But at the end of the day, there have been a lot of policies, a lot of things that I put forward, whether it's economic development or housing security or, you know, work on human trafficking, big things that I've been able to implement in my city. And I am infinitely proud of that opportunity to have done so. So I think you, you know, if you're coming in and you're, you know, one of the few of your generation or if you're one of the youngest of, um, you're kind of setting that historical tone. I think you just have to go in and, and, you know, come in with a mindset of being somewhat fearless and bold, you know, and just realizing that whether somebody put a seat at the table for you, you know, you deserve to kick down that door and bring your own damn seat to the table. I like it. That's as succinct and as good advice as, as we've heard for young elected officials out there. 
Let's now shift to housing. You've been an advocate of housing as a central policy, of affordable housing, of using pandemic funds for affordable housing. Talk about the efforts that you've made and then, you know, frankly, what you hope to do going forward in the area of housing. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different things that we've been addressing. Right now, we're in a a housing boom. And some of that, to be honest, is just replacing all that was damaged during derecho. But when you get to the point where you're really building up that momentum and really explaining about, um, you know, looking at our, our housing inventory assessments that we do and really just advocating for people to change their perspective, it could be something as small as addressing nimbyism one day, right? And I have absolutely been bold in my comments on council where some people have put together very elaborate, very passionate displays of, you know, saying, well, we want to keep everything single family housing, you know, in our area and saying, you know, we, we, we don't want those people here. And I call people in uh, as much as I can, instead of calling them out and explain, but who are these people? These people are human beings that could work at your business that you own. They could be your best friend and you don't even know. They could be, you know, your grandmother who needs an apartment. They could be that student studying that hopes, you know, that comes back here and creates a new business that you like going to. They're just people with different needs. And I think those barriers sometimes become very divisive. And so really having to guide people through what that looks like and what we really need in Cedar Rapids I think I've just tried to be very transparent, unapologetic, very communicative about what those needs are and just continuously drive those things home. Sometimes that conversation means talking with developers who are really hoping to get my seal of approval and explaining, you know, why would you have something that's priced three times higher than than the average median income in Cedar Rapids? You know, our needs are really, you know, 30% AMI. We're really struggling to do that. Can you do some mixed use? Because if you can actually have a variety of different income levels in an apartment complex or in a you know multi-residential unit, then you can really start to build an accurate representation of what the community is and serve that need. And we could probably incentivize it more. You know, so I think when you constantly talk about those subjects, housing at the end of the day for me is pretty much one of the main focuses that I have. I've I've served on the same committees the whole time intentionally development committee and public safety and youth services. And it's because those themes really are, for me, the biggest drivers of, of everything that we do. They intersect with healthcare so much, and they really just are the baseline of well-being in, you know, for health and wellness in Cedar Rapids. So, you know, sometimes it's also one of the, the big things that I did recently was talking about, you know, living in housing with dignity. And what that meant is we were getting up to, you know, have quite a few rental properties in Cedar Rapids, but we didn't have enough staff, you know, and didn't have a robust enough policy where, you know, we were inspecting them. And it's not because, you know, we've got amazing staff. You'll never hear me complain about our staff because we are just, you know, we've got some of the best in the industry at these roles that they have, but we needed to get them more of them so that we can, you know, could inspect these homes more frequently. I had a lot of people, you know, working in a middle-class town, and growing up here, a lot of people that, you know, ended up being 
you know, in factories and, and working those blue collar jobs. And what tended to happen, you know, is that they stayed very blue collar and they, they'd rent an apartment or rent a house and they didn't have the energy at the end of a long day to go and work through the process of reporting homes that weren't getting fixed by their, you know, by their landowners. And so what we did is actually reduce the years of inspection from five to three. And now with that three-year inspection, we're catching a lot of homes that were not in good, you know, were in disarray, that were not being kept up. We were catching a lot of property owners that were absentee landlords and addressing that. And so I'm really proud of that work because I want anybody that I know, anybody that's coming here, anybody that lives in Cedar Rapids to be able to live with dignity and live in a home that they can feel safe and secure in that has an, an actively an engaged, you know, property manager that, you know, fixes things when they break. I will also say too, that another angle of that, of addressing housing that I'm, I'm very proud of is addressing the people who are often and not spoken of, they might be whispered about, but not spoken of. And that's felons. You know, Iowa tends to be, you know, disproportionately impacting people of color, even though it's not by far the majority of our citizens. And if you're Black, you're, you know, infinitely more likely to have a felony charge in Iowa. And so when you realize what's happening and you realize that there are policies that are effectively creating what I call, I don't have a better visualization than by calling it these, these like garbage islands of people, right? Where we just disregard them figuratively in our minds and say, oh yeah, but you know, they did something and, and they're just over there. Well, they're not. They come back into our communities. They're part of people's families. They're people that we have set parameters around and said, this is what your years of, you know, of time in jail are going to be. And then after you've served them or you've been released or you've, you know, you've made amends with that, you need to come back and we need you to get to work. But we end up creating, not, not allowing people to reintegrate back into our society. So what we create is these figurative, you know, islands of people and we toss them aside. And then what ends up happening is recidivism happens because we've created bad policies that almost effectively ensure that people will only have the path of, you know, crime to get by in life. And that's, it doesn't make for a good society. So one of the things that I did was really looking at some optional HUD policies that were creating barriers to people in housing. Um, at that time, you know, we had an optional additional policy with some housing vouchers that limited people with felonies from getting housing or using housing vouchers for five years after they had served their time, which is wild to me that it's even an option. Now, the as I understand it, the limitation is one at the federal level, and I am trying to work through New Deal leaders and, and our partners at HUD to really ensure that we do the best uh, we can to eliminate that barrier. But Cedar Rapids, I was very proud of the fact that we reduced ours to three. We're working on getting the data to make sure that everything has gone off uh, without a hitch. And I hope in time in my service that we will eliminate as much as we can from Cedar Rapids you know, as possible so that we can get people to be back in our societies and be successful and productive members of society. But we just have to remember that you know, all the different pain points that we put on people that make their lives harder, especially if they've done something, you know, that they're paying time for. And those are very real things that people are paying time for. But once they've done those, we don't need to add any additional barriers on top of that. We just need to continue to 
look at our housing policies and make sure that we're always, you know, putting a roof over people's heads as often as we can. I totally agree. It's what makes me happy that you decide to kick down that door and pull up your own chair at the table and advocate for those who are never at that table. We're so glad to have you as part of the New Deal Network, and we wish you all the best in keeping all the various balls that you have up in the air going and staying sane while doing it. So thank you for your service. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.